Welcome to An Examined Education, a podcast recorded at the Cambridge School, a Christian classical school in San Diego, California, where we examine an education worth pursuing. On today's episode, Jeff and I sit down with a good portion of the math department at Cambridge, including Jacob Moeller, our chair of mathematics, and Josh Sansonetti and Andrew Chung, two other teachers in the upper school math department. We talk scope and sequence, philosophy, and a whole host of other things. We hope you enjoy it. Here's Jeff. It's good to be back and here with Josh Sansonetti and Andrew Chung and Jacob Moeller, three brain trusts here for of our math program. And uh, I was wondering if each of you could uh, introduce yourself and tell us who you are, how you got here. So I'm Josh Sansonetti. Um, this is my seventh year working at Cambridge. Um, got here uh, through knowing some people, talking with them, hearing about Cambridge, thought it was too good to be true, came and interviewed and found out, holy smokes, this place is amazing and been here ever since. So when was that? That was 2013. My name's Andrew Chung. I've been teaching math in San Diego for the last 12 years and I've been at Cambridge for the last two years. Nice. Mr. Moeller. Hello, I'm Jacob Moeller. I have been at Cambridge since last year, so 18 and 19. Um, so my my background is that I've been teaching math since 2000. This is my third context, third sort of gig to be at. Um, I was first introduced sort of to the classical school when I first started teaching in 2000 after I graduated from a liberal arts college. And yeah, I, I think that what I think today is drastically different than when I first started. And I'm eager to be a part of the Cambridge School, trying to figure out how to do this better than, than we once did. Nice. So um, I guess the question is, first of all, I am not a math person. Are you a math person, DJ? I'm not a math person. I didn't even show up to my pre-calculus final as a senior in high school. I was, it was taking not worth it. AP Calc as a senior in high school. You were not. Of course I was. That's were you pre calc? Pre calc. Is that a thing? Wow. Do you guys I teach think that? They, we now? take that in what? Is it fifth grade here? Yeah. Fifth grade? It's pretty yeah, much. I think so. yeah. It's okay. You ended up in art school. So <laughs> I did go to art school. Yeah. So is, I, it, is it bad that both of you outdid me in high school with the math that you took? <laughs> is, that, is that bad? No, no, no. You're Hawaiian, so we... Uh, That's right. We understand. Um, <laughs> oh, we lost half of our listeners just now. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so instead of going right to the technical stuff, what I figured we'd do is ask kind of a bigger question. Um, to you, and that is, um, how do we teach math differently here in a classical context? What's the Cambridge approach or the goal here of math? So I, I have to reflect on the advertisement that Jean wrote to try to get a department chair here. And she specifically sort of suggested that math should be taught in a broader context than just aiming towards the science, technology, engineering, and math person. And she... STEM. Yeah, STEM. I got that. That's good. First good letter acronyms. of each word. Yeah. That's right. Mm -hmm. And what she was looking for is, it, does history matter when you teach math? Do the characters that came up with these ideas, do they matter? 
And if they do, how much do we know about them? How well can we infuse classes with these people? And how does it impact the student experience and what they think math is about? So that's kind of kind of the general tone of her advertisement. And that's what actually I've been thinking about for several years. Mm. Like, why should math matter to a kid who's not leaning in the STEM world? And this idea of it being a liberal art is intriguing, the idea of a freeing education. And I think that, that Cambridge has been trying to um, follow the trajectory that Gene gives of um, not just liberal arts, but what we're trying to do here starting at Amity at the very bottom and then theology at the top. And if if I had the ability to show you this picture, but I can only say it, I don't remember all the steps to get there. But to get from sort of the basic human Amity of respect and reverence at the bottom level to mm -hmm. then theology, you have to go through the liberal arts and the quadrivium and the trivium. And the quadrivium is packed full of math. Right. Mm -hmm. And that begs the question, like, why is math placed there? And in my mind, it seems that the people who placed that as part of the education was that math can teach you how to think about things in an abstract way. And so you can strip it away from the trappings and that will allow you to then see what's at the heart of stuff. And then you can then be more philosophic in nature and then more open to theology proper. And, and so I think broadly, broadly speaking, math allows one, if taught well, mathematics taught well, that is, allows one to start seeing abstract structures of stuff that don't require necessarily um, numbers that don't require a certain context, but you can think about things in patterns. And I know I'm speaking sort of generally, so let me get to something. Mm -hmm. um, in one sense, uh, people know about sinusoidal waves or the sine curve or sine cosine and tangent in one sense. I, I have sinusitis. That's right. Yeah. You're on antibiotics for it though. Antibiotics. Yeah. It's been a killer for the last two weeks. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, no problem. And I think that just more generally speaking, a sinusoidal curve is something that is something that is repeating. It's cyclical. And the idea of something being cyclical, how do you describe it? Well, there's one that's naturally to the way that God made the world. Um, AM, FM radio, the amplitude, the frequency, the modulation. We were able to understand sinusoids in such a way that we have AM, FM radio. But that's an abstraction that somebody was able to say, how do we take this thing we call sinusoidal curves and do something with it? That's an application of, but then if you step it above, sort of more abstract, somehow the Rubik's cube and how you would operate that is related to this thing called modular arithmetic. And how do we get into modular arithmetic? Because there's beautiful objects that we can study in abstract algebra that have no direct correlation to stuff in all of its glory of abstract algebra, but parts of it do. And one of them is people can learn procedures and algorithms for solving a Rubik's cube, but it actually connects into bigger ideas that have no direct correlation. And that's pretty amazing that here's a subject that we can keep studying more and more of and get more sort of disconnected from the world and ki people, not kids, 
people have the ability to think these thoughts that I think God thinks. And if you think about that trajectory again, if you're aiming at theology proper and you're thinking abstract thoughts, well, you see how that's a nice combination. So then what does that look like in the classroom? Well, it has to look a lot different than just what's your STEM field. Are you going to study engineering? Are you going to study whatever technology? It has to be bigger than that. And so we have to interact with people differently somehow. So Jacob, as you're talking about this tightrope that you seem to be walking between concrete mathematical practices and the occasion to think abstractly about the world around you, uh, I'm curious, how does that kind of touch down in the classroom? Because you've got to grade homework and you've got to you know, have them learn these concepts in order to have a mastery of algebra. Um, and yet it seems like a pretty important part of math and certainly math at Cambridge to provide these spaces for abstractions. So what does that look like? Yeah. So I think there are a few, few levels of how that works. And I think simply we have to, in classrooms, not give the impression that one day of a lesson means that you give students homework that night that is to be mastered for the next day. And if it can be mastered, quote unquote, for the next day, you're not really giving them big ideas or things worth thinking about. But there are skills that they need to keep building in, in order to attain a, a, the abstract, abstracted uh, nature of mathematics. They can't just think about thinking. They've got to think about objects and what you're putting in front of them. So a classroom has to be where the homework that's assigned is such that there's lack of a better term, like skills that you're building upon. But then there also should be homework that's aiming at nuances of ideas. And that is both in terms of like the symbols that they see might be similar to things that you've shown in class and might be similar and with a tweak. And can they handle the tweak in a symbol? And if they can, then they're tracking some idea where the language is communicating to them. And if they can't, then they come back the next day and you say, okay, how did that go? How did you interact with this problem knowing that you didn't see it through class time? Uh, the other thing is, I think that there really is kind of a battle that I see where students who are not successful typically in a math class, meaning they get A's without much effort. That's kind of how we view success in classes. You can get a good score and you didn't put in much time. That wasn't me as a student, by the way. That is to say that we need to convince people that doing math is a human thing. So I think that the stories that we can bring into the classroom to make sure that students not only just hear us say that math, doing mathematics is a human thing, that they can actually see people through history as to what they were thinking about dealing with and why it benefited them in their context and maybe even the culture at large. So that we de demystify who's good at math and who's not good at math. And then once we sort of have students understanding that mathematics is broader than just for the STEM folk, like your guys' comments about possibly not being a math person. Mm -hmm, that was me. Yeah, it's, it's fun to say, but, but I think it's um, extra fun for me to say, yeah, I, I'm not a music person or yeah, I'm not mm -hmm. a dog person or yeah, I'm not a, 
I'm not a car driving person. I walk everywhere, <laughs> right? There's lots of things that we would hate to say, I'm not that. Right. So we need to do a better job in the math classrooms as teachers, convincing people that you are indeed a person who can think about mathematical ideas and it's important. It, it w will enrich your life. But now those sort of levels are there, but it hasn't touched on the abstraction. So how do you get kids there? And so I, I'm going to reflect upon my own calculus class this year. I enjoy these kids quite a lot. And it's really fascinating to me that some of them would say, like lots of kids, math isn't my thing. I'm choosing a non-AP calculus class because that's an option. And it's interesting to see many of them be able to interact with symbols like an integral or symbols like a derivative. And they're sort of tracking the idea of what the fundamental theorem of calculus is saying and that the symbols show out what it's saying and that I have been able to interact with them on a conceptual level of what the fundamental theorem of calculus is getting at. And that's a huge, huge, successful, huge, monstrous topic that took hundreds of years for mathematicians to come up with. And here I have 11th graders that are interacting in those ideas. And not only interacting in those ideas, but some of them saying there might be more to math than I realized. And I was sort of taking myself out of the conversation so early because I thought it was just about computation. And so what does a classroom look like? Sort of succinctly, we need to find ways to help kids grow in their skills, but also put in front of them things that are bigger than a skill and see if they can understand some ideas. And that takes like giving homework that's actually assigned one day and is due a week later. And that the course of your lesson is unpacking some of the things that the problems are introducing. So you can't just sort of say, I gave you a lesson today, I expect mastery tomorrow. It's a growth into where you're aiming. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that answers the question fully, but I think it gets at some of it. Yeah, I, what I'm struck by in your answer is, it seems like there are a couple different alternatives, and this was certainly my experience with math, was that you know at one level, you are asked to regularly just practice, in a sense, the soundness of an equation. Um, so you mentioned this kind of computational level, and of course you have to know how to do those things. But you know, in that sense, you're just um, at best kind of problem solving. And even if you, I think, which is often the case, like uh, the way that we justify math as a study is we show how important it is, you know, in the real world. You know, you need math to build a bridge. You need math to make a computer. Even that has never really been very satisfying for me. Um, because again, it just seems like you're just problem solving and you are finding the value of math and kind of its utility. And there's something about this wrestling with ideas and using it as a way to get to bigger thoughts, bigger ideas. That seems like a much more compelling tell us to me, at least as a, as a learner. Yeah, and for some of my students, specifically this calculus class, I convinced them early on that class was going to look different this year by setting in front of them 
that trajectory where amity is the beginning and proper theology at the end and going through these different stages in particular math and one student stayed after class after day one and said i've never heard that math could help me develop a better mind for abstraction and so i'm interested to play the game because i'm interested in abstract thought i like philosophy i like history those kinds of things this very student also finds math like the actual doing of the math and getting the math difficult and so the thing that i have to remind him and the class of is as broadly speaking in the classical world i think what we're trying to equip students with is not only hope, hoping that they will love doing what they're doing and pursue but also give them uh strategies tools something to become better learners and i think one of the things that i i think more modern day math uh, reforms are aiming at is how do we get math to be meaningful to people and i think that they might mean meaningful where kids just make stuff up that's uh makes sense to them like the multiple approaches to something is an option where not just solving a problem one way let's go out of different ways and we like to do that here for sure but I think that making sense of something is a hard thing to do, especially in a subject that's very technical like math. So I would try to remind my students, specifically this one student, how can you ask questions that can help you unlock what is missing in your understanding? And as you engage in your question development, you can actually start asking better questions that can that that skill can transfer into other ways of learning about the world broadly but also you could get better at learning mathematics by the better questions that you ask and so things have to make sense to you and it has to be full of meaning and i think that's what cambridge broadly speaking is trying to help kids with is how do you become a better learner and how do things really make sense and that you can make sense of it one really important thing is that to build a sense of rapport with the students and make them enjoy things. And to do that, for example, geometry is kind of take real life examples, just not make it such textbook. You know, the idea of opening a math book for many people is just like, oh gosh, it's you know, this Bible thin material. <laughs> You're just flipping page. I'm like, oh, I know. <laughs> um, this year, when we're just talking about similar triangles and getting into scary words like trigonometry and they're like trigonometry or what <laughs> yeah, so i i would okay how would you if you were you know 200 years ago and you wanted to measure the distance from one bank across to the other side of the mississippi a huge just very wide river how would you do that and they're like throw a string or shoot an arrow i'm like no without anything all you have is a baseball cap and they're just like, what? And then it just kind of sparks their interest. Right. And you probably have all heard, like, you put on the cap, pull the uh, brim down until it touches the other bank in your vision. Then you turn up bank on the land, and wherever it touches, that's the same distance. And they've been doing that for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And it's, it's the same math, but people that didn't go to school could do this. So they're like, oh, no way. That's well. And they're all acting <laughs> like they're wearing hats and doing all the things. And, and um, Josh, do you remember the name of the um, Greek guy that was proving the earth was round? With oh, his, Aristosthenes? Yeah. And, you know, just with a couple of toothpicks and orange and a bicycle, you can prove it. 
And they're like, what? No way. So just building this on excitement for them and, and feeding off of that. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, if you know, if you let their eyes gloss over, you, you've lost a little bit. So you need to keep that idea that they can capture this idea of the abstract that Jake was talking about, building these, again, these transferable skills. Um, they might not go into math, but now they're starting to be able to think in those terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. And it seems like it would kind of change the way that you view the world around you. Uh, do you find that that's the case? I, I think just like any other subject, it, you really have to pay attention to your audience as well um, from one year to another. Um, in math, at a certain level here, you have to have your finger on the pulse where because it has this, a lot of students come in like, I don't like math. You may have felt like that before your pre-calc final and, and took off. And, and that's something that I'm, I'm having to combat a lot of times. Um, but one thing I want the students to know that regardless of whether they want to do math in the future or STEM classes or not, math has a lot of what some people will call transferable skills things that I'm not going to speak as eloquently as Mr. <laughs> Moeller over here. Um, but the way that you can, if you work on the abstract, it will play a part in other aspects of your life, whether you're going into marketing, whether you're going into um, uh, just art, anything. You're yeah. going to see the world differently. Mm-hmm. Um, back in Plato's time, um, I think his art rival's name was I Socrates, not Socrates, is that correct? And he was talking about how men would go into the military uh, from 18 to 20 years old for two years, but for 10 years straight after that, the people that were wanting to go and become senators and such, they just worked on 3D geometry, which is very hard stuff. And they have no, they had no plans to do math later on in life. 10 years straight of this, and then they just stopped. But they were just sharpening their minds and as a tool, and then they just went into other dialectic type things. But I was with a lot of my friends, like, oh, I'm never going to use math. But I kept up with it, and I do feel like it has made me look at the world differently by being able to approach other abstract notions, such as as you talk about sinusoidal curves or going over and understanding all these different identities within pre-calc or integrations and derivatives later, you may not do anything with that later in life, but your mind has been, it's like an exercise Mm. in that, and now you can see the world differently and and approach things in in a better way that you might not have been able to before. Josh, what do you think? Yeah, I'd agree with um, what's been said already by both you and Andrew. Um, Looking at living here at Cambridge and doing math at Cambridge these past several years has really been amazing to see and reflect on the approach of our of my colleagues, not just in the math department, but in all the departments, um, is one of seeking to understand not just our own field, um, but how does our field interact with these other um, areas of study that most people in other educational spheres might consider to be more siloed than the classical um, ideals believe them to be. And so I think it's really amazing how I've just been in conversations with colleagues about Latin or science or literature, 
inspired to say, oh, how does that interact with the world of mathematics? How can math be a lens by which to view uh, science? How can um, the structures of Latin sentences be mirrored in some ways uh, in uh, composition of functions in Algebra 2? These various tie-ins of how do humans see the world and what are some interesting crossovers and how can math be a, a window to even persuade others, um, such as Florence Nightingale. I tell the ninth graders about this. So ninth graders, if you're listening, uh, cover your ears. You're going to get this in a few weeks, hopefully. Um, Florence Nightingale, who we know her as a nurse, uh, you know, but she's also a mathematician who, in order to convince um, lawmakers to pass certain uh, reforms uh, for health uh, sanitation, she created a new, a new type of graph called a coxicum and was able to uh, persuade them and say, look, we need these kind of reforms. Um, and so it's just amazing these stories of people who use math in a sort of rhetorical way, in a, in a sense, um, to communicate and convince in a winsome manner um, their audiences. What does it look like um, and what habits need to be instilled in, say, grammar school, the grammar stage? as they come up through? And what does that look like here at the Cambridge School? Um, yeah, so having worked in the grammar school for the first uh, two years approximately, um, one of the habits we want to develop is a sort of an eye for carefulness, um, for paying attention to details, noticing patterns, um, looking at even potentially um, large numbers and trying to see what is going on inside of there, what's the structures behind some of that. Um, so that's one particular thing that jumps to mind. Um, the grammar school loves uh, to start to work to develop number sense, um, which uh, then when they have me in seventh grade um, and ninth grade, it's really nice to see that number sense is, for the most part, still there in a lot of ways. And even kids who say to themselves, I'm not a, quote, math person, um, th I constantly get to remind them and say, look at your number sense. This is what you've built and what's there is um, really amazing. Uh, the ancients didn't have access to this level and our you know, students, before they even leave for college, get to interact with some ideas that people had to wrestle with, like Jacob was saying, for centuries to develop. When you say number sense, what do you mean by that? And how is that cultivated at the grammar stage? So a few things, um, the relationship between different parts of numbers. So factors, um, for instance, how to break up a number um, into smaller pieces that are multiplied together to achieve the total product. Um, when it comes to fractions and things like that, just the facility to be able to say, I'm rearranging these numbers in certain ways to rewrite them into a nicer, neater, cleaner format also known as simplifying, quote unquote, um, by most people. Um, but we want to help them realize that it's not always about simplifying, it's about rewriting a number. And you may have a different reason for rewriting a number for different uh, ways. Um, and so, especially in calculus, when they eventually arrive there, um, the there's a skill set, I suppose, because of their number sense, they're able to manipulate numbers and reconfigure them, reconstruct them, break them down, build them up, um, add things, subtract things, et cetera, exponentiate, whatever, and see a number in a different light. And granted, that is not, that doesn't just happen. And it's uh, not perfect. Nothing ever is. Um, but 
they are at various stages um, growing in that process. And uh, like I said, it's amazing to see uh, them work on that. Well, this conversation went a little bit longer than expected. And so we are going to stop the conversation here and pick up with part two in a couple of weeks. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard so far. And we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks for listening to An Examined Education. Be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, be sure to check out our website, schedule a tour, reach out to the Advancement Office. We'd love to see you. And we'd love to hear what you have to say about the podcast. So be sure to check us out on your favorite social media platform. Again, that's at An Examined Education. Leave us a comment, rate and review, and we'll see you next time.